is our latest book. We read Blood in the Garden by Chris Herring. It's the story of the 90s, literally the 10, the decade of 90s Knicks basketball with um, Patrick Ewing as the centerpiece. And uh, it's very fun read. Hope you enjoy the listen. Um, Rowie, you yeah. want to introduce yourself to us? Sure, yeah. Hi, I, I'm Rowie. Uh, it's at Rowie Hadar on threads. I, uh, uh, I, was, I, I only found out about the existence of the book club thanks to being, uh, quote, tweeted in the Megaloo uh, thread <laughs> about it. Uh, I'm sorry, I still use tweeted even though we're on threads. Uh, but yeah, I am a uh, TV news producer in my uh, in my like real life. But oh. I love sports. I try to do sports when I can. Uh, and I have a weird story where I am now a an, a Magic fan after being in a self imposed Knicks exile from James Dolan. <laughs> I grew up a uh, a diehard Knicks fan. Uh, now, are you the person who? uh posted the shattered podcast yes and threads oh yeah i listened to it today man it was great um i i haven't i've only listened to this episode and i know it goes on into the j the, the the uh the jimmy dolan years which sounds like a mess to listen to but i think i'm going to try and listen to the whole thing oh yeah it definitely explains a lot of the arc of the uh, of the Knicks the like how it all went wrong from uh from this era that Chris Herring writes about yeah it's so we're mostly Sacramento Kings fans well all three of us are Sacramento Kings fans so we definitely understand like the the albatross of failure that like you know fans of bad teams carry with them but the Knicks have like also that kind of the glorious uh past even previous to this like you know with and and so many i think iconic basketball players come from the new york scene the new york situation but also that 70s 80s scene that he describes at the very beginning of this book too where they did win a couple championships and there was you know there was a great culture and it was the mecca for everybody not just you know ncaa and stuff like that um but yeah i mean i you know so many of the books that we read like built to lose and stuff like that are kind of disaster narratives because it's so hard to be a success in the nba when the only real marker of success is a championship right but i think this was so endearing in that it was the culture and um, the almost succeeding that made it such like a valuable commodity as an NBA fan. And as a Sacramento Kings fan, we totally get that because we have that 2000, there's like a little eight year period where like Rick Adelman was our coach and we actually made it to the playoffs every year. And like all that we've really been wanting is to like get back to like, mediocrity you know and um and just not be bad anymore so hopefully it's happening for both fan bases at this point that fingers crossed anyways right <laughs> i mean i i want everyone to win i just want everyone to have fun but obviously if one team's gonna win that's not 
that's not going to be possible for everyone. Um, Kev, John, do you guys want to start? Do you have thoughts, quotes? I didn't actually take that many notes this time. I, I really enjoyed the book. I thought um, I didn't grow up during this era, so so learning about this this Knicks team everyone talks about was was really interesting. Um, I especially liked learning about uh, Jeff Van Gundy because you know he's been a play caller, you know, broadcaster for so long. It's like I'm not a huge fan, but this made me appreciate him a lot more than I used to. And yeah, a lot of it. Sorry. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just, I was just going to comment on Jeff Young Gundy. Yeah, and uh, Pat Riley, too. Uh, I mean, I only know him from the uh, Miami time. But obviously, you know, he has his Lakers and uh, Knicks. And, and it's, it's interesting to learn about that. Yeah, well, um, I also didn't take many notes. I took a notes initially. Like, I took, I wrote down some stuff as just, you know, stood out for me to page 91 of the of the paper book and then i kind of just uh enjoyed the story you know and, yeah uh, but so i'll get to my quotes uh i think as we go through the book as we go as you usually go through the book i'll get to, okay. I'll get to my quotes but um one thing i'll, I'll say at the beginning is it, it's in the forward or whatever you call it in this book he said horace grant said when he used to walk into the garden to play the knicks i didn't always know if we were going to win but i always knew we were going to bleed yeah <laughs> And that's like from an opponent, one of their hardcore rivals. That's like it's a, it's a great uh, way to describe I this in team. On that one too. And I mean, uh, in like, general, what? It was such an interesting. I mean, I think like the stories of this season, as far as like narrative, have been a lot about Draymond, right? And mm. it's like, who is he? As far like I, I know that there's a lot of people who are like, oh, he's Dennis Rodman, but Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman, I mean, has, I think, clinical mental health issues, right? I mean, documented ones, like, whereas, like, someone like Oak or Mace, who are also celebrated for this, like, crazy toughness, um, it was more just, like, about being it was, the uh... in a way. You know, I don't know. Rashid Wallace said that he basically grew up in that that bad boys locker room. So so if if we're trying to point towards any kind of team or player that he resembled the most, it's someone on that bad boys Pistons team. Yeah. Um, And and obviously, as this book mentions, the Knicks of this era is basically a a clone of, of those Pistons teams. So yeah. there's definitely really a lot like, of really like their, their I, style. It, it makes you kind of realize like that Draymond might be like a player out of place in this era, you know, in the era where the rules are changed and the standards are different. Like he would have fit right in on a team like the 90s Knicks, like, the, like you were saying, like the bad boys Pistons. Like I don't think – like people would have just been like, "Oh, he's a tough guy." I don't, th- I don't know if they would have blinked as much at, um, at some of the stuff he's doing now. You know, especially thinking about like when the, the Knicks and the Heat had that brawl and Van Gundy was clinging on to Alonzo Mourning's leg. Yeah. <laughs> like, like the, the stuff that Dre was doing. Like, there was somebody on the other side who was just as able to do that. Yes. You know, I think yeah. um, 
my analogy I draw for Draymond is that like he's driving 90 when everyone else is driving 65. If everyone was driving 85, 80, 90, he wouldn't get pulled over, but he's driving 90 in an, in an environment where everyone else is driving 65. He's just standing out as the worst of the worst for that kind of stuff that used to be common, you know? Yeah. Not common, but just not not like you wouldn't go up in arms for it, you know? It would just be I like, think oh. like I, for me, like the, the chapter in here, uh, the enigmatic life of Anthony Mason was was so good because he does such a good job of like presenting someone like you're saying, who's like literally like pedal to the metal living his life. Like he doesn't sleep. He like goes out at 3 a.m. He proposes to, to, you know, his girlfriend at 3 a.m. while blasting, you know, something out of his car window. Like he has kids all over the place. You know, he's just constantly partying and yet showing up and kicking everyone's ass at practice, you know, and on the opposing team. Um, but then there was like this other side of like the, the you know, going to the hospital and hanging out with the kids or like showing up at his mom's house and like dropping thousands of dollars on her dresser or like, you know, I think it's, it's enigmatic. Like these kind of people, like I've known a lot of people in my life who like require, I think, I think DeMarcus Cousins being a fan of DeMarcus Cousins for so long was, you know, he's, he's pretty controversial, like definitely has had some missteps both publicly and privately, but yet then you, you're like, oh, but he paid for like all these people's funerals in Sacramento, you know, behind the scenes, like he was doing Santa cause he was like, so there's like multiple sides to every person. And I just think it's fascinating that in sports, particularly, you may have to have this certain level of aggression, per, you know, in your personality to get to like succeed in it. But then it reaches like a level where maybe <laughs> you're not doing yourself any good anymore. You know, like I think it has with Draymond, like, He's probably had to fight his ass off to get here. Like we know he had to take it personally where he was drafted. Um, you know, I don't think he had the same level of like the, the guys on, on this team, like Anthony Mason in particular, and then John Starks, those two stories of just kind of digging out of the mud and like playing all over the world and like, you know, that's really compelling, I think. And and I know like in the the Shattered podcast that I listened to today, they were saying like that was something that really endeared the New York fan base to these guys is that these guys were like blue collar workers, you know, they had to like pay their dues to like even make it. And like the story about John Starks, like bagging groceries, you know, like this, the podcast was like, did he really do that? Like, that's probably totally exaggerated, but you just feel an affinity for him as somebody who's like this normal dude, you know? Um, and it's, I just want to like raise, cause I, I think about like, so just to give you a time sense, like I grew up like with the post, um, the post this era Knicks, but would hear stories. Like my mom was the one who was first into, uh, into the Knicks. And so it was like, when I was born was right around the middle of this era. And, you know, she would tell me or, you know, the things that you watch on, you know, MSG Network or if they talked about Starks at any point, like there were so many 
mentions on the broadcasts, whether like anytime there was a national game, which the Knicks had many, that you know, the broadcasters would say John Starks was bagging groceries at a same Yeah, uh, That's like the touchstone for his it, yeah, personality. It, <laughs> it became one of those where it was almost like like a meme just because of how often the broadcasters would bring it up. Um at, I feel like there's there's factoids like that that broadcasts occasionally glom onto. And that was like the 90s Knicks version of that. Well, it's so funny. I So I was in, I, a long time ago, I went to an Allen Iverson space on Twitter, right? And then, and we talked, there was somebody in there who was like, who was my age. So I'm like 53. And um, so I watched this team. The reason why I got, I'm from California, but the reason why I got to watch them so often is because they were on national TV all the time. And that was rare. Like there wasn't, it was a big market team, right? Like you didn't, I didn't see any Spurs games. I didn't see, I saw the Lakers. I saw the Knicks, maybe Boston was thrown in there. And then there was, there was a bunch of fun teams like Indiana was, you know, all the rivalry teams that they talk about in here. They were either they were on national TV a couple times a year or because they made it to the playoffs, you would get to watch them early, right? On ABC. Um, if it was ABC at the time, I don't even know that. But yeah, what's funny for me is I remember every single game that he goes through in here. And it was kind of one of my favorite things about the book, but I also hated it in a way. Um, just because I felt like it kind of took me outside of the narrative to a certain extent. But the thing is, that's funny is going back over it and like going through each one chronologically. I realized that in my memory, the entire decade was like condensed. So that like for me, if you told me that Anthony Mason and Alan Houston were not on the same Knicks team together, I wouldn't believe you. Like now I would, now I know. But like Latrell Sprewell and Doc Rivers and, you know, it all kind of globs together for me. And then Jeff Van Gundy is like the coach that I remember. Even though I must have, I think I started watching even more of the Knicks because of, of Pat Riley. But for whatever reason, I didn't, I wouldn't have like been able to tell you that Pat Riley was, you know, that first kind of iconic coach that came in and changed the culture around and all that stuff. Um, and then that John Nelson was like thrown in there. I don't remember that at all. Um, Me either, yeah. Which, I mean, I, that seems like kind of, I think that the culture piece of this is so interesting because they kind of pitch it as like, it's, it's, it's Pat Riley that comes in and implements this massive culture overhaul, but it's in conjunction with the front office, the Ernie Grunfeld and the, um, the Dave Checkets, right? And then the players all buy in and then it sort of gradually diffuses out until the 2000s when everyone's gone basically ernie's fired dave quits you know pat's moved on i mean thankfully they canned don nelson because i don't think i think the culture would have probably died out after if there had been more don nelson but the players wanted the accountability and wanted to continue that cultural touchstone that pat riley had implemented I mean, tell me if i'm getting totally off base here I'm, this is my interpretation of the story kind of um 
But all, I mean, and over the top of it is the ownership, right? The James Dolan stuff, I think, is the shadow of doom that sort of like hangs over <laughs> the badness of the team for the last, you know, 20 whatever years. Um, he comes in at the end and starts to make his presence felt. Yeah, yeah. For the shot, I highly recommend the Shattered podcast. I did put it as a um, as a link at the end of my thread on threads, or tw- I did put it on Twitter too. Um, and it was so good. But one of the things they have Jeff Van Gundy on it. They go and interview like a bunch of these guys, and they had Jeff Van Gundy on it, and he says like he kind of. He doesn't say it straight out, but he kind of says like, once, or once Grunfeld was gone, he only had Checkets as like a buffer between him and James Dolan, and so he knew like, I mean, he was always in jeopardy anyways. He was always going to get canned anyways, but he kept like outperforming, right? But um, so he was saying like, the more he had to deal personally with James Dolan, like the the rougher the whole thing got. Um, and that's what he felt like that. And then them trading Patrick were like the two kind of harbingers of the end um, where the ownership just got too involved. And then Patrick's legacy wasn't really valued as it should have been, which I don't know, you know, I like these kind of like iconic players that age out of their, of their original roles, I think is such a complex issue for teams to deal with like i think we're also seeing it maybe with golden state right now where it's like how do you retain the legacy of like the cultural um knowledge that somebody like a clay brings or somebody i mean i'm not saying clay's career is over or anything like that i'm I'm not but i am saying that guys get older and their efficacy lessens and so like how should teams deal with that if they value it as like a cultural um, touchstone, right? And um, so I think that was really interesting. For me, I mean, Patrick Ewing was the next of this era. That's just like the other guys, like I like I loved Marcus Camby, I, you know, um, and he talks about in here too how like at the beginning of the 90s, they sort of had this like two punch kind of offense that was like basically Patrick Ewing and John Starks. And that's all there was. There was like no real diversity. They didn't have outside shooters. It was just everyone in the lane, get it to Patrick, figure out what he can do. And otherwise John's taking the shot. Right. And so, I mean, that's sort of nineties basketball in a nutshell in some ways. Um, Although there was, you know, there was way more diverse kind of, kind of teams as well, but uh, but I think as it as the 90s went on, and then I, I think like weirdly that adding Don Nelson in after Pat Riley might have diversified their offense more. Oh yeah. Um, because he was so like they he describes him as like a mad scientist and wanting to run things through um, Anthony Mason and wanting to run things through um, a forward instead of from the point guard position. And, um, I mean, uh, Don Nelson was a visionary, right? I mean, I, I think you can make the argument that he wasn't great with people, or at least this book makes that argument. Um, or at least he wasn't, he didn't 
he didn't enforce like the cultural kind of makeup that they had built with Pat. So I don't think he ever gained trust from the players. Right. It seemed like he didn't, um, he didn't, you know, try to try to set his own culture. Like that. This is our culture. Like this is a veteran team. You know, there's in there, there's in there's like, it's a bunch of vets and we're, so we're going to just like implement this stuff and we're going to practice less. And he didn't try, yeah. it, didn't, it didn't seem to me, you know, that based on the book that he, he tried to like, you know, create his own, like, oh, we're going to shift now guys. And we're going to, we're going to be more like this. It seemed like it was just like, let's just, let's just roll the ball out there. Let's, let's do our little offensive diagramming and let's practice. Yeah. Less. Let's have Mason be the point forward and, and just, Good. Let's go, guys. Let's do it. Right. They, they didn't. They didn't buy in yet. They didn't buy in yet. So I, I think to a certain extent too. Like maybe Don, I think Don Nelson's image may be different now too because after this he went on to have other incredibly potent offensive teams. Right. Not only that, but now he's like some Hawaiian pot salesman dude who like basically whenever they go and interview him, he's just high as a kite hilarious so i think in some ways like the player problems that he had i mean we know he had problems with um, chris weber he had other problems in his coaching career making you know with the player relationships um and i you know i don't know enough about it i just remember that being one of the talking points against him but then his tenure like in dallas was incredible right where people bought into him making his whole new system. So maybe, you know, in the long run, these kind of foibles and mistakes of like hiring him, it not working out, maybe that benefited their offense. Maybe, and especially since Jeff was still an assistant coach under him. So Jeff could take the things that worked like from both places and kind of try and incorporate them. And as he got different people like Marcus Camby, Allen Houston, and Latrell, they were able to expand, especially they were able to expand the space on the floor. Allen Houston and Marcus Camby were both good three-point shooters for the time. Um, and then I think 94, 95 was when they moved that three-point line in, right? Um, so anyways. Oh, um, you know oh, go ahead. Okay, thanks. Uh, so... I was just going to say, you know, I think um, actually maybe you can cut this, Megan. I forgot what I was going to say. So go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say I had to go back and look because I wasn't sure if it was in this book or in Shattered, but I it is in um, in Heron's book in the Nelson section when he's talking about um, the or when Heron's writing about the uh, the the trade offers that Nelson uh, was that that were rumbling in the Nelson era. And it's so interesting to the point of like thinking about the next offense changing, like how generational it would have been if either of these uh, went through. Um, before I get to them, just I, I still find it crazy when I hear about like NBA rumors from like 30 years ago <laughs> and that they're just published in the newspaper. Like I, I, I'm a Georgetown alum and I remember seeing a newspaper clipping from the mid to late nineties where it just shows up in like page 15 of the sports section somewhere. And it's like, Oh, um, 
you know, the LA Clippers interviewed John Thompson for their coaching job. And <laughs> it feels like the sort of thing that now like Woj and Shams would have everywhere. ESPN would have two, you know, three days of first take about it. Yeah. <laughs> look at like the ridiculous level of, um, of uh, trade talks here that, oh, it happened to get out into the papers that uh, New York was looking to move like a few of those role player guys. They have Oakley, Mason, Starks, and uh, Smith, I'm assuming Charles Smith, um, for uh, Alonzo Mourning. Like, yeah. And then you have Nelson being screwed because the organization wasn't ready to make a trade of Ewing for a 10 years younger Shaq to give him a head start in New York so that they can sell him on staying, uh, you know, like taking on Shaq as an expiring contract to get a head start uh, from Orlando to make sure he didn't sign with like the Lakers or anybody. And oh, think about like how, how like the team would have looked so different with it running through Shaq or yeah. instead of through Ewing, like, it feels like such a turning point that they said, all right, we're going to keep this culture that has worked for us well, but can't beat the bulls instead of taking like a big risk, like, uh, like trading for Shaq. Yeah. I mean, I kind of like, it's, it's interesting. Like, I don't think, I mean, basketball didn't change a ton in this, in this 10 years. Right. But it did start gravitating further and further towards the three point line. And, part of that gravitation was when they changed, when they moved the line in. And um, so, so guys started making more of those shots. They started practicing that shot more and then they moved it back out. I think two years later. Right. Um, but in, in a sense, like that was, that's kind of looking at and understanding how the role players changed over that time and going from like Oak and Mace, to Houston and Camby, that's that's where you see it, right? Where all of a sudden they added they added offense, they added shooting, um, and even like they said, Jeff Van Gundy was like distraught when they traded Oak, right? But they just weren't. I mean, without but then but 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 then having Marcus Camby come in, and then Marcus Camby like had so many legendary nights where he just saved their butts with like extreme shooting you know a marcus camby is one of my favorite players of all time i was actually surprised i remember there being like a lot of scuttlebutt at the time that he was sort of like a pot smoker like lazy dude kind of guy um but and i think that was probably worse because he went to new york where there's such this huge media market and they're gonna like like you said they're gonna like scuttlebutt everything in the newspaper you know um but anyways yeah, I mean, it, it's a fascinating, uh, It's it was just a really good book, uh, in my opinion. And um, and I it really resonated because, like I said, I had watched almost all of these games. I think there was one game that I didn't remember, but as he was going down, like the game breakdowns at the end of the series, I was like, oh, I remember, oh, oh, like, like the, the, um, you know, and some of it's just so iconic. Like, even if you didn't see the game at the time, you know about it. Like, the Spike-Reggie thing. I feel like every basketball fan kind of knows that to a certain extent, that Spike and Reggie, you know, that Spike was, like, 
harassing Reggie and then Reggie just kept making shot after shot after shot. It's just um, this very cool, very like memeable moments of basketball. Um, yeah. I just listed out like all this stuff here. So the Pat Riley, Don Nelson, the front office. Um, you know, I think the ownership groups changing um, was probably the biggest kind of impact, even though from Paramount to Cablevision, it didn't, you know, it didn't um, change significantly, but bringing in James Dolan was like, again, kind of, I mean, I think most Knicks fans view that as the nail in the coffin, um, you know, until now, until this last couple years of success under Thibodeau, but you could argue that Thibodeau is trying to rebuild kind of the same Knicks culture that existed under Riley, right? Like he does two a days. He like plays his guys 40 minutes a game. He's like, I mean, they're not, I don't think you're going to, you think you're going to bleed when you go to New York, but you know, you're going to have to fight through a bunch of dudes who are going to play hard. You mentioned in this book that Thibs was, I think he was an assistant to Van Gundy. So. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I remember like when you'd see the old Knicks intros after they introduced Van Gundy, you would hear, you know, assistant coaches are Tom Thibodeau. So yes. Oh, fascinating. So, I mean, so he's bringing it back, right? I mean, and I think to a certain extent, again, like bringing in my Kings fandom, I think Monty is trying to bring back the Adelman era in the team that he's built um, and how he's built it. Like you can kind of see like how he's getting the pieces and how the pieces fit and how they mirror the pieces from that old team. I don't know if there's like necessarily a mace or an oak on this Knicks team now, but you could say, you know, there's a lot of Allen Houston's. Um, yeah, I, I find it like it, it's it's really interesting how 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 strong man ownership can really just destroy a team in a second. Um, them having to trade Oakley for and then firing the the GM and the coach and yeah, it's, 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 it's crazy how much ownership really just throws a wrench on, on a team. Like, yeah, this team was great and it was kind of blown up almost instantly Yeah, because of, of Dolan and, and we've experienced heavy handed ownership too. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, ownership is, is is a surprisingly annoying. Well, and we have Miami to look at and compare to what, like, Miami is Pat Riley's baby, right? Miami is the culture. Like, they even wrote that on their court without centering the goddamn yeah. floor, which is a crime. It, it is. It, Miami is almost like the Knicks counterfactual. Like, we actually get the what if. Yes. Yeah. Totally. And even with the morning, I mean, that that Miami team and the, the rivalry between New York and Miami at the time was like the hottest shit on the plate. Like it was so fun. There was always going to be a fight. Jeff Van Gundy would always be at the bottom of the dog pile, like and come up with his hair all messed up. Like um, the 70 wins. 
<laughs> just absolutely insane. I mean, and Alonzo Mourning was such a good, you know, foil to Patrick Ewing and everything about it was so compelling. Um, but I think it's so interesting too that like they talk a lot about like little kind of actions. I mean, maybe it's not a little action to require them to uh, fire Grunfeld or Ben Gundy, right? Where James Dolan said one of them's got to go. Um, but then that, and you know, then that implemented check it's leaving later on because he was like, that never should have happened. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not in anymore. I'm not all in. Um, but also the whole thing about like the the bill from the Reno trip when they stopped in Reno. Yeah, that Reno trip is one of the funniest stories. You, you mm. would have never known about that unless right? you read a book like this. But, well, but and then Riley like like being pissed about that not paying him back, like for like ten thousand dollars, which is probably nothing to him, right? But just the fact that they didn't reimburse him, like was like you know just simmering under the surface, like. You know, so they couldn't like let him into like the ownership share uh, because of the way it was structured. And then plus they hadn't paid him back for this this gambling bill, which like I don't should he really have gotten paid back for? I don't know. Yeah, but they promised him, and that's what matters. Yeah. yeah. And then John Starks didn't see his hotel room the whole night time he was in Reno. <laughs> <laughs> he was at the craps table wherever he was at, winning and losing. I feel like Jalen Brunson is very stark. Starksy kind of player too. No, I mean he's obviously has way better efficiency, but to me he's kind of he's kind of like in that same mold of like that small, fun, shit kicker guard. You know, it's actually really funny to bring in my like to bring in my modern day Magic uh, fandom to see um, Cole Anthony feels like he's very much in the John Starks mold. Complete with the inefficiency too, yes. Uh, and it's it's wild to think that he would be the person to do that, considering his dad being a part of those '90s Knicks teams, Greg, uh, and arguably like I mean, well, he was like Starks' backup at that point too. Is Cole Greg's son? Yes. Oh my god, I didn't know that. Yeah, so he what? is he is very like that's one of the things that made me feel at home watching them is like. You know, at least him, and uh, until recently, Bamba being a being a New York kid, like they felt like yeah. a, a lot of like Nick South energy. Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, that's the, I think like this year's Magic is a really good kind of example of like where they're trying to build and implement this like fairly hardcore defensive minded culture. Um, I just watched them today and today's game was like the more bummer game that I've watched of them, but they just, cause they don't have friends and they don't have Joe. So they didn't have any shooting really, except for Paolo. But yeah, I mean, where they're putting together just all these kind of shit bird guys. Um, and like, I mean, Suggs too has been so good this year. Like I didn't, I didn't, that totally took me by surprise. That's not I, something I, I expected. I didn't know he was, I, I didn't think he was necessarily going to find that level in the pros. Yeah. I, it is so interesting though, that culture feels like the running theme here. Like I think about it even with, with you guys in Sacramento seeing like 
the fan culture, the team culture, everything feels like it's building finally and moving. And like, you know, it, like even with the Knicks the last few years, like we're seeing the same sort of thing happen. Fans are coming back. They're paying attention. Uh, you know, I, I feel like, well, like you can see it even with like those, uh, I, I don't know how familiar you guys are with those side talk videos. Um, of the fans outside MSG, it's where the whole Bing Bong thing came. Oh from. yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are delightful. Um, and that, like, you know, being away from New York, like, that is the like best reminder to me that, uh, like, of how wonderful Nick and crazy Knicks fans are. Yeah, uh, that they are so ready for a winner, and like that, like they have like that that Lakers sized culture, but with no, with no winning to, uh, (laughs) in their lifetimes. It's, it's like, it's like if Lakers fans had the Kings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if the Lakers were the Clippers, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Well, I mean, maybe not the Clippers. I mean, the Clippers, my God, the Clippers are going to like win the whole thing. This year and everybody's gonna be like, oh meh. <laughs> um, I okay. Hey, hey, before I, we get off this topic, can I can I share my screen? Yeah. Um, about I don't know how to do that on this platform. It should but, be um, down here in like. Do you have a remote in the corner? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And then there should be like okay. a screen share right there. I can share YouTube. That's what that's what I'm going to. But I'll share I'll share my screen. Oops, that's not what I want to do. Wrong button. My bad. Okay. And it's going to... Oh, here we go. I get to share by window. Nice. All right. So... (laughs) I decided last time to make... A Murray graphic, right? So every time he made a three, I was sharing it. So it was just like a key, and but I, it was like taking up the entirety of it, my whole freaking screen. Like I couldn't, I couldn't keep up. He was making them so fast. Okay. I stopped sharing my screen. I don't think I saw what I was sharing, but um, I'm I seeing see it that Murray. Oh, you see Murray? Oh. I have seen a I've seen a lot of Keegan Murray threes. <laughs> Sorry, my bad. I, I don't know. I, I, I never shared my screen in this in this thing before, so let me um let me try from the from the Iowa Hawkeyes school of three point shooting. Yes. Okay, my bad. Do you see can you see a, a Knicks guy looking pretty angry but hot fired up right now? Some Knicks fans. Oh, oh yeah. Okay, that's enough. Yeah, so the original channel that did that show is them the, side you gotta show them Tom Brady. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's my favorite guy. Okay, I'm done. So your, uh, my my favorite here. is the KD. Don't you regret not coming to the Knicks? <laughs> Uh, also, the guy who you showed the angry guy is great because um, he he brings it back to politics. 
and he's like, like the angry guy. He's like, we had the Blasio, we had Cuomo. It was rap shit, <laughs> but at least we have the Knicks. <laughs> and, and I think the first time I saw that, like I got off my couch and started like running across the room laughing. <laughs> oh my god, that's so funny! I found the. Uh, I wonder if I can. Let me see here. I found the. Um... The New York Knicks song that he talks about how one of the janitors. Yeah, uh, you you gotta play this. I don't. I probably like ran out the tape, or the broke, or like made the CD full of scratches playing this. It's so good. To me, it's so funny that people would wear their ties and their suit jackets when they're in the game, when they're at the, at the NBA game. I looked up the uh the um like the origins of that song further and those guys that wrote that song they were like the janitors at Madison Square Garden or what the guy was like the janitor and he ended up getting hired to write songs for like a bunch of teams in the nineties that were like kind of loosely based on that. And basically he's like a millionaire now. Yeah. They're and writing they're, sports they're, go there's songs. A, there's a bullets <laughs> version. I know for sure. Um, oh, man. And, um, and I know that he married the lady who created Spanx. Oh, so that's how he has all the money, and now he's an owner of the Hawks. Oh my God, that is freaking insane! I'm gonna have to find, dig that out and make a chronological timeline of his life. Maybe how hilarious is that? Okay, uh, I don't know. I I like randomly pulled a bunch of quotes, but I don't really. Um, you know, they're just kind of like explicative of like the culture they were building. Like the, again, like what we've already talked about, like the Riley shoot arounds often went two hours and were full contact. Um, and then this was, this is about Anthony Mason right here. The strong effort stemmed from fear of losing his spot. I, I think it's just incredible how much Pat Riley kind of built like almost a cult of personality, like, like a persona that that was like untouchable he he obviously he had his time in in the lakers but like when he went to the knicks he was basically like god emperor or like yeah you know, this untouchable like the way he coached he he was like hot shit you know the 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 you know he always dressed up in this fancy uh suits and 
and ran his team in grass super hard. There's and- all these accounts. Like there's a bunch of accounts on threads that are called like Armani hoops or like, yeah. I don't, and I don't know, are they referring to, I mean, cause he was famous for wearing Armani suits. Right. Yeah. And he had like that written into his contract that, you know, Armani was going to dress him and all this stuff. So I don't always know if they're referring to Pat Riley or like there's one called Armani Mafia, um, Armani Mafia Hoops, I think, something like that. Or if they're referring to Booker. So I don't know. Anyways. Um, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, he, he basically made himself the class of the the NBA. Yeah. Like, and it's incredible how you know, he's basically kept that, like like building that um, atmosphere, and always throughout all these years, kept that that class of the NBA throughout. I, I think that's incredible. Well, and that just that Miami has been. I I mean, I don't. I'm not a Miami fan, so don't quote me on this. But I mean, the fact that they made it to the finals last year with basically like just people they found in the scrap heap, you know, and Jimmy, like, it's like, well, I mean, I bam and Jimmy and everyone else, like, it's, it's insane, like, but that the culture has maintained, I mean, you see where like the Knicks kind of fell off the cliff in the 2000s, right? And then obviously, we have the, the Wade, um, we have the championship even before LeBron got there with that was with Shaq and Wade and Bosch and stuff and then LeBron came and did they win two more with them yeah it was two I think I think that was two so in the 2000s the heat were like riding that shit to infinity and beyond obviously they brought in stars more stars than they do now like to me that's a part of the culture um is you're gonna outwork everybody right um or at least try and uh and it's been successful for them long term now so if we're saying riley went there in 95 we're talking about almost 30 years of like basketball kind of you know greatness really i mean at least being at a level that the knicks were at that the fans were like super excited about you know yeah Oh, but yeah, I mean, absolutely incredible. I thought it's interesting that they talk a little bit too about um, Riley's dad being a professional ball player. And then when his career ended, it was pretty, you know, like went kind of straight to depression of like, what now? And I think that's probably more common than is talked about for professional athletes is is that what now? I mean, maybe there's more options now than there was in the past to do podcasting and and commentary and all that stuff. And maybe people talk more about mental health. But I do see like having a career like that that ends so early in your life. And, you know, you're making so much money and you're like a hero and, you know, everybody knows your name and all this stuff is like, and then all of a sudden it's nothing the faucet just cuts off you know it must be a crazy like mental health journey to get yourself right and i thought it's interesting that chris herring notes that like pat that pat was always scared of like that drop off after his career ended um which is kind of what got him back into it and then chick hearn being such like 
a proponent of his and like helping him find his way back in. And then it was just like coincidence. So much of like all of these stories that we've read or it's just like co the opportunity a lot of the time for a lot of people just seems like coincidence, right? Like, oh yeah, I was looking for someone and he was right there. Like, you know, just crazy. Like just, I mean, the, the way that the whole Lakers coaching thing happened in the Showtime era is just nutty opportunity for Riley. And then he happened to turn it into this 40 year long, you know, massively impactful basketball career. Absolutely insane. I yeah, he um, was his dad. Daniel was one of my favorite Sonics of all time. But this story about him walking around the locker room with, with towels on his dick was cracked me up. Also, um, sorry to like jump in before you're transitioning here. No, uh, no, no. But, but, um, but just for, for X, I feel like um, he feels almost like a perfected like Draymond Green type in terms of the mindset. Like, oh, that's such cocky, a good call. No pun intended saying cocky, uh, but like brash and like there, I was looking back because I thought I saw something about X in there. Like, and I saw um, there was a quote about um, Riley telling him to be the Seattle version of himself because uh, oh. he's hesitant and to get him like pissed off and, and, like more physical in the game, and then you got him doing uh, doing exactly that to Pippen and Jordan in that one playoff series. Um, like it, it's so interesting to see what happens when you have that crazy streak, but it's like harnessed or like selectively deployed rather than yeah. deployed aimlessly. Right. I, you know, and I don't know what happened. I can't say that I know what happened to Xavier once he left the Knicks. Like, I, the story about him leaving was kind of a bummer. Like, he just didn't understand the way bird rights worked, and they didn't really explain it to him very well. So he thought they were basically, like, overlooking him when they were just waiting to sign him last because they had bird rights on him. Um which I mean, it ended up working out okay for the Knicks, but I don't know what happened to him after that at all. Um, did they not I, have a? Did they not have what's it called? Those salary things, um, cap cap holds back then. Did that, did that was that part of the CBA? Yeah, they had. So they had bird rights on Xavier. I know they had bird rights, but did they have cap holds so that like, you know, what it, it, they did they did a, they were trying to do a maneuver that like I don't think you can do that these days. Like it doesn't matter because I don't know. I you know I pulled up. I don't. I don't think I can share it. Let's not get into this. And never mind. Yeah, I just want to tell new. I don't want to. I want to research it right now. There is yeah. like if you go to um um what's the good the good salary that like Smith does. Oh, CBFAQ. No, the uh, god damn it! I, it's gonna kill me if I don't remember it now. Um. <laughs> Let me see. Let me see her. It just confused me a little bit with that one that they were like. I, it sounded to, to me. I mean, the book makes it seem like they just didn't communicate with him. Yeah, like, for sure. Like where he's like, why aren't they talking to me? Like why aren't they signing me? Why aren't they making me this offer? Um, and really, what they were do trying to do was get all the other ducks in a row so they could go back to him and give him 
the max money they could give him. But um, okay, so just to so we're like at an hour, so I'm gonna try and speed through some of this stuff. I think we've covered a ton already. I think it was interesting. It talked about Oakley playing football and like um, learning to really love like physical contact in the context of football, which I think there's like this narrative right now about everybody playing, um, you know, youth basketball and not diversifying in sports. And like, what effect does that have on your body as far as injury and but I think it's also interesting to look at it in this context of like, what effect does that have on your uh, mentality in the game, right? Where like Oak actually like learned to actually love being in the midst of that punishing kind of physicality and he brought it to basketball, you know? And I mean, there's some guys like that in the league now, a few maybe, um, but he was so outrageous. Like he would, he would, the, the, this quote, that play was so physical. The refs had no idea what to do. He recalls right then I told myself this summer, I'm getting two guys just like Oak. And I mean, I think like we had Meta here, um, you know, who was similar to this it was like, is he fucking batshit or is he really effective? Like he just loves like stirring the shit. Right but he's really goddamn good at it. Like, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that he was the guy that the uh, Indiana GM went out and got in response to Oakley um, kicking the shit out of them and not getting called for it. Uh, let's see here. Um, and then this was like, they talked a lot about like the rules that they made. There weren't as many as I thought, but they talked about the rules that were made that either like use Knicks players as like the poster kids for the rules. Um, and one of them was the hand checking rule. And then this one, the player leaving the bench during the altercation was in response to that Miami um, kerfuffle, fracas. Um, and then the hand checking too. So that's kind of cool. And then uh, like I had said before, I think that also necessitated like kind of a roster change up in the sense that like they needed more outside shooting instead of like all of this interior uh, physicality that they had with Oak and Mace. Um, sorry, let's see. Yeah, and then they're just like how how much they loved Van Gundy. Like, it's so funny because I think like some people, like we talk about Riley's legacy, right? So Riley is completely iconic. Like he is the culture. He is Miami. He, like I said, it's like 40 years of this completely successful coaching slash, you know, personnel management culture, you know. But then you have someone like Jeff Van Gundy who had this really solid run as a coach here who like overcame all of these times that they were like, oh, he's going to get fired. He's going to get fired. He's going to get fired. And then plus having like the huge market newspapers and as dumb as it sounds like newspapers, 
like reading sports news in a newspaper used to also be a huge deal. I know Twitter and threads and all this stuff make it like an instant kind of like push notification that everybody's going to freak out about. Right. But reading the paper, like for my dad's, you know, my dad's 90 something for him reading the paper, he would read the paper and then he'd go talk to all his friends about it. So in a huge market like New York, I think everything was under a massive micro, you know, uh, magnifying glass. I mean, and it talks about that to an extent with their, their like personal foibles of how many kids they had and uh, Patrick Ewing breaking up with his wife and his wife writing a book and all that stuff. Um, but anyways, so what I was trying to say was that Van Gundy's, I think, legacy has been mildly tarnished because of his broadcasting career. And same with Reggie Miller. Like, I'm kind of a Reggie Miller defender to a certain extent, where, like, the people who didn't see his playing career, or for Van Gundy, the people who didn't see his coaching career here or with Houston, I don't think know, like, how revered he was by his players. Like, what a great coach he was. Like, he really did save some of these series from being over sooner than they were. It was because of coaching. And he maintained the culture in the places that he went. And he's really a smart basketball mind. But if you just sat and listened to his broadcasts, I don't know that that's the takeaway you're having. You know what I mean? Like I, they just, him and uh, Mark Jackson would just go off on these weird tangents, some of which were hilarious, but some of which were like, what are you even talking about? It's the middle of a basketball game. I, um, but anyways, oh, I can remember like even being a kid and like fans loved Van Gundy. Uh, yeah, like he, like it, they talk about in the book, and I think this was also in the podcast too. But they talk about Van Gundy as like a grunt worker, like that he, you know, like this, like played in played D three and was like like worked his way like by being like willing to scout and to, you know, stay in the video room late. And it's so interesting to see him like, to, like he's basically, if we're doing the whole, the, he are Pat Riley's alternate universe, Knicks, he is the Knicks alternate universe. Spo. like Holstra mm. had exactly the same kind of story, like, you know, uh, playing like not going to be a pro at all. And then just, um worked his way in as a guy who would stay all night and watch all the tapes and being that rebound machine and the film room addict yeah yeah and, and part of it for for me for when i i mean when i was watching this team well i was probably 20 right but his 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 appearance like he just has these mass he looks like a freaking accountant first of all um his hair was always fucked up and he has these massive bags under his eyes all the time. And he literally would be like the first guy at the bottom of the dog pile. Like he was just as tough as his players, but he looks like he should have a pocket protector, you know, like, and uh, so I, I just, I totally get like loving him. I, I think he's, he's such a great coach. I know that like, I've heard a lot of podcasts I, and the Shattered podcast has him in it, which is great, but I've heard a lot of podcasts of former players of his who credit him 
with just like telling them exactly what he needs from them. Like, he's like, I need this many rebounds from you tonight, you know, just being extremely explicit and simple. And anyways, um, and I think going, you know, like Patrick, like made a huge push for him to, to not be the one that was fired. Um, And then it's just funny because they were like in this period of like, I would consider the Jeff Van Gundy period to be just as compelling as the Riley period was with Spree, with Camby, with Houston. Um, and then they were kind of like beset, you know, by injury age. Uh, but he sort of tells the background story on like the John Starks game seven meltdown where they had somebody who could have come in as a backup, but uh, they didn't put him in, you know, because he had like, uh, Riley didn't put him in because he had some, like, he wanted to bring wives on the trip or something. And uh, so he just let John Starks out there, like hang himself basically, even though, um, anyways, so, and then this was the end is, is even if the story didn't have a happy ending, it's one nearly all the players and their millions of fans have, have longed for a team like that ever since. And they would gladly relive it. And that, again, like that resonated so much because I, you know, you go back to the 2000 Kings and that's, that's it. We don't have to win everything, but that it's still like the glory days of the franchise. Right. Um, it's still sad for me, though. Both both now they mentioned the Kings. It's a good good comparison, but like it's still pretty sad for me that you know they ran into Tim Duncan, and and in the year they the year that they were probably could have won it that was that was the year they had the big uh, suspension thing going on, right? Yeah, and they had they had Ewing hurt too. Yeah. Oh yeah, Ewing hurt. Ewing and, was hurt for the and, second one as well. And Larry Johnson already was having his back issues pop up. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Larry Johnson, too, is such an un underrated part of those Knicks teams. Like, he was one of my all-time favorite players in Charlotte. And then, I, you know, he was probably – okay, so they have – so he he gives, like, the character studies of Mace, Oak, Ewing, Starks, and Johnson, right? And maybe he does a couple others. He does, like, the, the butterfly and the – the bowl kind of one where it's like where the culture takes a toll on some of these guys that weren't as, you know, didn't buy in as much um, and maybe destroyed them to a certain extent, you know, which is also worth thinking and talking about, you know, which is I think a part of the reason why basketball culture as a whole has changed to become hopefully a more, um, I don't know, a less bully, like macho. I want to say macho, but it's more like a toxic kind of masculinity where it's like, it's it's like, I'm in, you know, I don't know. I, that's complicated. I probably shouldn't speak on it since I'm not, I'm not even a dude. Um, but uh, where was I going? Oh, Larry Johnson. I, yeah. And he, the story about him doing the grandma ma commercials I thought was so cool. And then the, that they really painted him as he was just a good guy. Like, whereas all the other, these other guys sort of had this really complex kind of 
character makeup where they have these, you know, really hardcore, I mean, Anthony Mason, probably to the extreme of, or like Oakley with his gambling, um, at, you know, where they were just such bad boys, but then they had sort of good sides. But Larry Johnson was just a good guy who was funny and like who embraced doing this crazy shit. Like who would have dressed, you know, cross-dressed as as a grandma? Like that's insane. But it was so funny and so successful and so iconic for that time. Um, but he and I don't like he's not a standout player in my memory of the Knicks, but he was so fantastic in in that whole, you know, era of basketball. Um, I honestly, I want to share that I, um, I don't know how to put it really, but you know, I kind of feel like Ewing is in both teams, but the Ewing, Starks, Mason, and Oakley, and I don't know if anyone else I would put in there, but like those guys, (laughs) the analogy or the assembly I would draw would be like, those guys are like Van Halen when they had David Lee Roth. And then <laughs> after that, it's like when they had to hand with the other guy, Sammy Hagar, it's like, you know, it's, it's not, it's the same, it's a, it's a, it's the same similar team, but it's just not the same. But the, yeah, just for me, I'm not a Knicks fan, but like Johnson, especially Spreewell, who's, who's good, but like who came on there towards the end and just kind of was attached on there and, and to help get them to the finals, of course, obviously. But like, I just, it just feels different to me than the, than the first, the first set of guys. I think Sprewell is like sort of a complicated story again, because he sort of outlasted everyone else too. So he was like the face of the team as it got worse and worse and worse. Right. So even though he was like a part of the Van Gundy team, once Van Gundy left, Sprewell stayed for a number of years and was sort of the face of the franchise for better or worse. Um, him and and Allen Houston too, like everybody, yeah. like like Houston, I might have even stayed longer. Like it's amazing I, that there are still these links. There were still these links. Like I remember growing up and being like these links to these when I was a little kid are still like tied to the Knicks. Yeah, yeah. I can't even imagine growing up in New York. It must be so pervasive. Well, and Campy went to the Nuggets, but I don't like it was. It was the Carmelo Nuggets. Camby was there before Carmelo got there. Um, I can't tell. I can't say what exact year that was, but um, you know. So I don't know if he was as much of like the face of failure as Latrell was. Uh, I don't know. I just pulled some of the pictures. That this one actually wasn't in the book. This is, I just pulled this one because it's McDaniels and MJ. Um, is that just is like seems like such a 90s kind of image to me of, of like this, you know. And then this is Checkets and Riley. Um, there's Oak, Mace, and Riley. He looks like a proud dad. Doesn't he? <laughs> and then Patrick. I mean, it's just, it is a tragedy in some ways that I think there was a bunch of teams in this era that 
never got past Michael, you know, and even though they weren't like facing Michael every single time, it was still like the bulls were the shit in the nineties. Um, but so many other great teams. And I love that he went through all the different like rivalries with, because Indiana was so fun. Miami was so fun. I actually love the Hawks team. The Dominique uh, Wilkins Hawks team was so fun of this era too. And that's probably all I have. Let me see here. I say it's, it's just so much fun to root for teams that have an identity. Like in every era, there's always going to be teams that don't make it right because 30 teams, only one can win. And it's like, yeah, but, uh, but that doesn't mean other teams can't be celebrated and, and, Go, learning about this Knicks team, learning about why everyone appreciated it so much, just Sorry. appreciating the the identity they built, the the you know blood in the garden, the um you know the Knicks, the tough guy Knicks. It's 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 fun, and ah! and it's just a such a nice experience to to go through these you know teams that. That you wouldn't otherwise, because you know that they're not the the number one. They're not the the you know they don't get as much flowers as they deserve. But it's but they they're great teams nonetheless, and they should be celebrated. Anyways. I'm I'm waiting for the uh, for the King's book from the from the J. Will C. Webb era. I feel like I, they, I think, they're, they're the think, next team to deserve the, the 90s Knicks-style treatment here if we're moving through the years. Yeah. Because we, we had uh, Jerry Reynolds's book, which went up right before that, I believe. Um, but there's not really a book of that era. Actually, I think Jerry Reynolds's book mostly, it stops like when they start sucking. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's think is around that so time. Chris Herring last year when the Kings start like when they they implemented the beam and they hired Mike Brown Chris Herring who wrote this book uh was here and he he went on D'Lo and KC which is like a YouTube radio show here a local radio show and he said the reason why he was here is because he was interested in documenting uh, like, uh, you know, a uh, rise, right? The come up. Yeah. Um, the come up's always the best part. Yeah. And, uh, so I don't know, I don't know if that's gone anywhere or what he had. To, he, he basically said that like to write a book like this, you have to have someone to pay you to do it. Right. Or obviously the time, the unpaid time to do it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And he didn't, he didn't have that when he went on the radio to talk about it, but I, you know, who knows? I mean, especially depending on how this year shakes out. Right. Um, I think we could see more. Also, we could probably write it at this point. (laughs) I mean, we've done a lot of like, we, we read Jerry Reynolds book and then we read Pete Carrell's book, which Pete Carrell doesn't talk about his time in Sacramento, but I think he was pivotal, pivotal in implementing the basketball culture that they were trying to um, promote 
you know, during the 2000s, um, he was sort of like the Tex Winter of the Kings. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I was totally thinking that when I was listening to Shattered, too, is that even if we didn't write a book, we could do a History of the Kings podcast, right? Oh, yeah. There's a lot that. of source material that you can dig up that is pretty interesting. I think it's interesting even why they moved to Sacramento um, and that they were going back and forth between Omaha and Kansas City and they didn't have sponsors. And, you know, when they came here, they literally came to a freaking barn. Like, <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. Any last thoughts on this sucker? I, I thought this was really, really fun to read through. Um, it was very entertaining. It was very engaging, compelling. The way it was written is is very, you know, interesting. Tur page turner. Uh, I, I got through this quicker than most of our books. Yeah. Um, and and I, I was really glad we read through it because it, it's nice to appreciate these these good teams that don't get so good. I think it's great how like how applicable narratives are, you know even narratives of mediocrity or disaster, how applicable they are to like the entire timeline of basketball or to like different teams. And then everyone's sort of like interconnected personnel wise. So like you can trace all of these different people from organizations to their next organizations and stuff like that. And then the philosophy parts of it um, continue. Right. I mean, obviously, I mean, the most obvious one, obviously, is pop at this point. But pre-pop, there's Riley, you know, I don't know that Riley has a coaching tree, per se, or that Van Gundy does either. Um, but there was something pre-pop, you know, that was about about having this kind of like hardcore culture. I think there was sort of an opposite philosophical culture with like Doug Moe or something like that. Like someone who's just preaching like all offense, which is more like, you know, like a Doug Moe, George Carl kind of ram it down your throat offense, which is interestingly kind of what like Carlisle's doing this year, um, which will be, you know, interesting to see how that all pans out. But great book, great narrative, uh, enjoyed. John, any last thoughts? My last thoughts were like, you know, it was a little bit sad that uh, Ewing out and this whole thing, the whole the whole story. I guess, I guess, I guess, yeah, yeah. you know, able to be a good team. Obviously, I'm glad they wrote the book. Meg Heron wrote the book. They were worthy of a book for sure. But um, yeah, Jordan was a buzzsaw for a lot of a lot of a lot of, a lot of people. And, uh, and then yeah. he was gone, or he came back, you know, and wasn't as good for the first third of the last third of that season. So I think the magic bounced him, but um, that year. But uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's too bad. That's all. Well, and I think the end of Patrick's career. I had it on my slides too. Like the end of Patrick's career, where he went to the Sonics, and he like he was he was pretty. Okay, so again, like I keep referring to the Shattered podcast, and it's only an hour, like the episode that 
directly relates to this team. I highly recommend going to listen to it. It's in my thread thing, but um, it talks about how Patrick asked for the trade. He was the one that asked to be traded. And then there was a lot of, you know, second guessing about that, that he should have been somehow, they should have figured out how he could have stayed at the Knicks and a different role or like, you know, etc. cetera. But um, yeah, so the last part of his career was pretty sad. And then I think in Sacramento, for me, I have that picture of him in the airport, <laughs> like leaving the coaching interview. You know what I mean? Like, and I think like as a coach, he never really got, I mean, now the end of this, it covers his Georgetown victory. Um, and I don't know if he's still the coach of Georgetown. I think that was like a couple years ago that they won. Uh, but he never really got a chance in the NBA as a head coach. I think that Van Gundy is both like really promoted him and talked really highly of him. And I know at the time there was a lot of conversation about the fact that like big men weren't considered good tacticians of basketball, right? Not like point guards were. So in terms of coaching, like the likelihood of former players being hired would be a lot more of like a point guard kind of situation. Um, but I mean, he's a really smart man and he, he does really know the game. Um, and it, it's just time like adds so much to the legacies of these guys. Like, you know, I just, or like there's the, the, the little clip of him. Like, did you practice that shot? Why'd you take that shot? Did you practice that shot? You know, like, Oh, but, um, yeah, he was just such an iconic figure of 90s basketball and an incredible player. I mean, I think it's overshadowed by how run down his body. Like when he was on the Seattle bench, you could barely see him. He was wrapped in so much fucking ice. Like he had ice like on his knees, like the ice packs were like this thick. Like, and it, it was, it was sad, you know, but, uh, yeah. oh, for, to the Ewing point, um, I love that you brought it up because I was thinking the same thing as like the full circle that um, I got to see um, a lot as a Georgetown alum of viewing um, as a coach. Yeah. And I like they loved telling you on broadcasts and stuff that he was a product of the Van Gundy coaching tree. I had to go oh. back and look it up, but he's like, other than a, like the, the stint where he really like formed as an um, formed as a coach was um, under the Van Gundy's. Like he was under Jeff in Houston, Stan in Orlando, yeah, and Steve Clifford, who I believe is also a Van Gundy coaching. Oh, interesting. In Charlotte. Um, so and then when he came back to Georgetown. Um, it was seen as like the, the, the prodigal son returning and, you know, it got all that national media attention. Um, he had that attitude. I remember watching that game with the, with the, do you work on that shot? You know, the clip <laughs> of him chewing out, um, that one, that was actually an insane game because he chewed out Marcus Derrickson, who I believe had a couple of, uh, cups of coffee in the NBA, um. And that was the game where Derrickson's whole career turned around. Like he he 
turned around in the second half of that game, and then he, uh, you know, worked up into G League and Summer League conversations. Um, and it's hard not to think that it was Ewing who was able to get a guy like that from from just sort of flaming out to um, to like that sort of NBA periphery. Um, the, That's funny. The tournament win was insane, but then in true sad Knicks fashion, um, he had two more seasons and he won a grand total of two in-conference games. Oh no. Including one season where he went over in. Oh no. So uh, he's not the coach there anymore. He is no longer the coach. Ed Cooley, formerly of Providence is now the coach. Um, But it was, it's a very like, it's a very fitting, like, he has this moment, he's the guy, and then it just fizzles out. Yeah. Um, and and completely unrelated, but I saw tonight while I was prepping for this, uh, they were showing Nick's Bowls from Christmas Day 94 on NBA TV. Oh, my God. And I put it on, and I thought I was getting the digested version because it, it dropped me in with three seconds left in the game. And I just want to send you guys, I'll drop it in the chat because I don't know how to share my screen, um, this moment uh, that Steve Kerr said was the dumbest thing that he's ever done on a basketball court. Um, And I texted my mom because my mom, I know, would have been watching this game. Um, She doesn't, her memory varies. And I texted her, I said, hey, do you remember this game? And... I got a text and I said, I watched it and I was like, I can probably still hear you screaming because I thought, (laughs) oh, this sounds familiar. And she wrote me back and said, I can't believe you said what I was just going to say. Not only do I remember watching, but yes, I remember screaming. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. And the the moment that I I put the timestamp on it is absurd. Um, One of the great buzzer beater clutch shots you'll see. I put at the very end of my thread too, I put just... Just it's the toughest NBA team ever. I think it's like the 92, 93 Knicks. And but it's I watched, I don't know, I watched 30 minutes of it the other night. Um, but it's fascinating. I mean, <clears throat> because you're watching it close closed down basketball, right? It's basketball. It's all in this like tight space of the lane and and uh all that, but they're so fucking big. Like they are huge. Like Oak Oakley in particular looks like a football player. Like, and it's funny because I would think that like in some ways, I mean, obviously you could be like say Zion's like an aberration or whatever. And I'm not saying that they're thick necessarily, but they're all just so bulky down there. And um, it's just an interesting. I somebody else I think Dr. Thompson on Threads had put a a thing out today about would stuff still be great if he if he wasn't a prolific three-point shot maker, right? Um, and I think what came to mind for me immediately was like, could his body have held up in that 90s kind of, you know, in the lane, getting pushed, shoved, like getting hit in the face, like, I don't know, you know, do players. And then I, the Sunday is my podcast day. I listen to the greatest of all talk all the time. It's like my favorite podcast that I have. 
And, um, and they were talking about that on this episode as well, where they were saying like, has uh, the three point revolution uh, prolonged the careers of a lot of our favorite players, right? Like Dame is like a great example. Like if Dame had been playing nineties basketball, his whole career, instead of playing way out past the three-point line, would his body have held up, right? So it's an interesting conundrum. But I I do recommend, like, looking at a little bit of the footage of these teams just because, like, they, they had even different body types for what their roles were. It started changing a, a little bit more under the when they got the more outside shooting and stuff like that, like Houston and Camby are both these like long lengthy guys but mace and oak specifically are like squat short larry johnson is another one or like you have a bunch of freaking football dudes on your team you know um okay 